0: Section five of Honeybee by Anatole France, translated by Mrs. John Lane. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kate Fallis. CHAPTER Fourteen, in which we are told how Honey Bee saw her mother again, but could not embrace her. Honeybee, a crown on her head, was now more often sad and lost in thought than when her hair flowed loose over her shoulders and when she went laughing to the forge and pulled the beards of her good friends pick tad and dig whose faces red from the reflected flames gave her a gay welcome but now these good dwarfs who had once danced her on their knees and called her honey-bee bowed as she passed and maintained a respectful silence she grieved because she was no longer a child and she suffered because she was the princess of the dwarfs it was no longer a pleasure for her to see king locke since she had seen him weep because of her but she loved him for he was good and unhappy one day if one may say that there are days in the empire of the dwarfs she took king loc by the hand and drew him under the cleft in the rock through which a sunbeam shone along whose rays there danced a haze of golden dust little king loc she said i suffer you are a king and you love me and i suffer Hearing these words from the pretty damsel, King Locke replied, I love you, Honeybee of Clarides, Princess of the Dwarfs, and that is why I have held you captive in our world, in order to teach you our secrets, which are greater and more wonderful than all those you could learn on earth amongst men, for men are less skillful and less learned than the dwarfs." Yes, said Honeybee, but they are more like me than the dwarfs and for that reason i love them better little king lock let me see my mother again if you do not wish me to die without replying king lock went away Honeybee, desolate and alone, watched the ray of light which bathes the whole face of nature and which enfolds all the living, even to the beggars by the wayside, in its resplendent waves. Slowly this ray paled, and its golden radiance faded to a pale blue light. Night had come upon earth. A star twinkled over the cleft in the rock then someone gently touched her on the shoulder and she saw king Locke wrapped in a black cloak he had another cloak on his arm with which he covered the young girl come said he and he led her out of the underworld when she saw again the trees stirred by the wind the clouds that floated across the moon the splendor of the night so fresh and blue, when she breathed again the fragrance of the herbage, and when the air she breathed in childhood again entered her breast in floods, she gave a great sigh and thought to die of joy. King Locke had taken her in his arms, small though he was. He carried her as lightly as a feather, and they glided over the ground like the shadows of two birds you shall see your mother again honey-bee but listen you know that every night i send her your image every night she sees your dear phantom she smiles upon it she talks to it and she caresses it tonight she shall instead see you yourself you will see her but you must not touch her you must not speak to her or the charm will be broken and she will never again see you nor your image which she does not distinguish from you then i will be prudent alas little king Locke. see see sure enough the watch-tower of clarides rose black on the hill honeybee had hardly time to throw a kiss to the beloved old stone walls when the ramparts of the town of clarides overgrown with gilly flowers already flew past already she was ascending the terrace where the glow-worms glimmer in the grass to the postern which king lock easily opened for the dwarfs are masters of metals nor can locks padlocks bolts chains or bars ever stop them she climbed the winding stairs that led to her mother's room and she paused to clasp her beating heart with both her hands softly the door opened and by the light of a night lamp that hung from the ceiling she saw her mother in the holy silence that reigned her mother frailer and paler with hair grey at the temples but in the eyes of her daughter more beautiful even than in the past days as she remembered her riding fearlessly in magnificent attire as usual the mother beheld her daughter as in a dream and she opened her arms as if to caress her and the child laughing and sobbing was about to throw herself into those open arms king locke tore her away and like a wisp of straw he bore her through the blue landscape to the kingdom of the dwarfs chapter fifteen in which we shall see how king locke suffered seated on the granite step of the underground palace Honeybee watched the blue sky through the cleft in the rock and saw the elder trees turn their spreading white parasols to the light she began to weep honey-bee said king locke as he took her hand in his why do you weep and what is it you desire and as she had been grieving these many days the dwarfs at her feet tried to cheer her with simple airs on the flute the flageolet the rebeck and the cymbals and other dwarfs to amuse her turned such somersaults one after the other that they pricked the grass with the points of their hoods with their cockades of leaves and nothing could be more charming than to watch the capers of these tiny men with their venerable beards tad so kind and dig so wise who had loved her since the day they had found her asleep on the shore of the lake and pick the elderly poet gently took her arm and implored her to tell them the cause of her grief pal, a simple, just soul, offered her a basket of grapes, and all of them gently pulled the edge of her skirt and said with King Locke, Honeybee, princess of the dwarfs, why do you weep? Little King Honey Honeybee replied, and you, little men, my grief only increases your love because you are good. You weep with me know that I weep when I think of George of Blanchelande, who should now be a cavalier, but whom I shall never see again. I love him, and I wish to be his wife. King Locke took his hand away from the hand he had pressed. Honeybee, he said, why did you deceive me when you told me at the banquet that you loved no one else? Little King Locke, Honeybee bee replied, I did not deceive you at the banquet. At that time I had no desire to marry George of Blanchelande, but to-day it is my dearest wish that he should ask me to marry him, but he will never ask me, as I do not know where he is now, nor does he know where I am, and this is the reason I weep. At these words the musicians ceased playing the acrobats interrupted their tumbling and stood immovable some on their heads and some on their haunches tad and dig shed silent tears on the sleeve of honey-bee pow simple soul dropped his basket of grapes and all the little men gave vent to the most fearful groans but King Locke, more unhappy than all under his splendid jeweled crown, silently withdrew, his mantle trailing behind him like a purple torrent. CHAPTER Sixteen, IN WHICH AN ACCOUNT IS GIVEN OF THE LEARNED NUR WHO WAS THE CAUSE OF SUCH EXTRAORDINARY JOY TO King Locke King Locke did not permit the young girl to observe his weakness, but when he was alone he sat on the ground and with his feet in his hands gave way to grief he was jealous she loves him he said to himself and she does not love me and yet i am a king and very wise great treasures are mine and i know the most marvellous secrets i am superior to all other dwarfs who are in turn superior to all men She does not love me, but she loves a young man, who not only has not the learning of the dwarves, but no other learning either. It must be acknowledged that she does not appreciate merit, nor has she much sense. I ought to laugh at her want of judgment, but I love her, and I care for nothing in the world because she does not love me." for many long days king loc roamed alone through the most desolate mountain passes turning over in his mind thoughts both sad and sometimes wicked he even thought of trying by imprisonment and starvation to force honeybee to become his wife but rejecting this plan as soon as formed he decided to go in search of her and throw himself at her feet but he could come to no decision and at last he was quite at a loss what to do the truth being that whether honeybee would love him did not depend on him suddenly his anger turned against george of blancheland and he hoped that the young man had been carried far away by some enchanter and that at any rate should he ever hear of honeybee's love he would disdain it without being old the king meditated i have already lived too long not to have suffered sometimes and yet my sufferings intense though they were were less painful than those of which i am conscious to-day with the tenderness and pity which caused them was mingled something of their own divine sweetness now on the contrary my grief has the baseness and bitterness of an evil desire my soul is desolate and the tears in my eyes are like an acid that burns them so thought king locke and fearing that jealousy might make him unjust and wicked he avoided meeting the young girl for fear that in spite of himself he might use towards her THE LANGUAGE OF A MAN EITHER WEAK OR BRUTAL. ONE DAY, WHEN HE WAS MORE THAN EVER TORMENTED BY THE THOUGHT THAT HONEYBEE LOVED GEORGE, HE DECIDED TO CONSULT NUR, THE MOST LEARNED OF ALL THE DWARFS, WHO LIVED AT THE BOTTOM OF A WELL, DEEP DOWN IN THE BOWELS OF THE EARTH. THIS WELL HAD THE ADVANTAGE OF AN EVEN AND SOFT TEMPERATURE. It was not dark, for two little stars, a pale sun and a red moon, alternately illumined all parts. King Loc descended into the well and found Nur in his laboratory. Nur looked like a kind little old man, and he wore a sprig of wild thyme in his hood. In spite of his learning, he had the innocence and candor characteristic of his race. Nur said the king as he embraced him. I have come to consult you because you know many things. King Locke, replied Nur, I might know a good deal and yet be an idiot, but I possess the knowledge of how to learn some of the innumerable things I do not know, and that is the reason I am so justly famous for my learning. Well, then, said King Locke, can you tell me the whereabouts, at present, of a young man by the name of George of Blanchland? I do not know, and I never cared to know, replied Ner, knowing as I do the ignorance, stupidity, and wickedness of mankind. I don't trouble myself as to what they say or do. Humanity, King Locke! would be entirely deplorable and ridiculous if it were not that something of value is given to this proud and miserable race inasmuch as as the men are endowed with courage the women with beauty and the little children with innocence obliged by necessity as are also the dwarfs to toil mankind has rebelled against this divine law and instead of being like ourselves willing and cheerful toilers they prefer war to work and they would rather kill each other than help each other but to be just one must admit that their shortness of life is the principal cause of their ignorance and cruelty their life is too short for them to learn how to live the race of the dwarfs who dwell under the earth is happier and better If we are not immortal, we shall at least last as long as the earth, which bears us in her bosom, and which permeates us with her intimate and fruitful warmth. While for the races born on her rugged surface, she has only the turbulent winds, which sometimes scorch and sometimes freeze, and whose breath is at once the bearer of death and of life and yet men owe to their overwhelming miseries and wickedness a virtue which makes the souls of some amongst them more beautiful than the souls of dwarfs and this virtue o king Locke, which for the mind is what the soft radiance of pearls is for the eyes is pity it is taught by suffering and the dwarfs know it but little because, being wiser than men, they escape much anguish. Yet sometimes the dwarfs leave their deep grottoes, and seek the pitiless surface of the earth to mingle with men, so as to love them, to suffer with them and through them, and thus to feel this pity which refreshes the soul like a heavenly dew. This is the truth concerning men, King Locke. But did you not ask me as to the exact fate of some one amongst them? King Locke, having repeated his question, Nur looked into one of the many telescopes which filled the room. For the dwarfs have no books. Those which are found amongst them have come from men, and are only used as playthings. They do not learn as we do by consulting marks on paper, but they look through telescopes, and see the subject itself of their inquiry. The only difficulty is to choose the right telescope and get the right focus. There are telescopes of crystal, of topaz, and of opal, but those whose lens is a great polished diamond are more powerful and permit them to see the most distant objects the dwarfs also have lenses of a translucent substance unknown to men these enable the sight to pass through rocks and walls as if they were glass others more remarkable still reconstruct as accurately as a mirror all that has vanished with the flight of time for the dwarfs in the depths of their caverns have the power to recall from the infinite surface of the ether the light of immemorial days and the forms and colors of vanished times they can create for themselves a phantasm of the past by rearranging the splinters of light which were once shattered against the forms of men animals plants and rocks so that they again flash across the centuries through the unfathomable Ether. the venerable nur excelled in discovering figures of antiquity and even such inconceivable though it may seem as lived before the earth had assumed the shape with which we are familiar so it was really no trouble at all for him to find george of blancheland having looked for a moment through a very ordinary telescope indeed he said to king Kinglock he for whom you search is with the nixies in their palace of crystal from which none ever return and whose iridescent walls adjoin your kingdom is he there cried the king let him stay and he rubbed his hands i wish him joy and having embraced the venerable dwarf he emerged out of the well roaring with laughter The whole length of the road he held his sides, so as to laugh at his ease, his head shook and his beard swung backwards and forwards on his stomach. How he laughed! The little men who met him laughed out of sheer sympathy. Seeing them laugh made others laugh. A contagion of laughter spread from place to place until the whole interior of the earth was shaken as if with a mighty and jovial hiccup. Ha! 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 End of Section 5